All right, well, good morning, everybody. Morning, how we doing? Good? What about you guys? I think, I think Wesley should preach this morning, right? That was, that was excellent, Wesley, seriously. Um, and if you want to preach, man, I'll, I'll lead worship. We'll see how it goes, right? <clears throat> Be great. Just kidding, I will not. Hey, uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 9. And uh, if you're new here today, let me welcome you here. If you're a guest, first time here, we're grateful that you're here. My name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus, and we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, We always say this to our guests. There are some QR codes in front of you. Uh, You can take out your smartphone. You're allowed to have that out uh, at church. Uh, Take it out and point your uh, camera app there at the QR code. That'll take you to lpguest.com, or you can just type in lpguest.com as a browser. That's basically a resource we've developed for you to help you through this morning. It's got the message notes there that'll be on the screens as well, the passage for this morning. Uh, It's got some helpful information for you for our church just to help orient you to LifePoint. And so if you wouldn't mind taking a moment, it takes about 60 seconds or so, just there's a guest information card there. Turn that in, fill it out. Uh, We would love to connect with you digitally. And then on your way out this morning, you can also connect with us uh, personally out at Guest Central. So uh, guests, again, thanks for being with us. We're um, kicking off a brand new series, as Wesley mentioned this morning, calling, calling it Uncommon Crown. And the big idea of this series is that Jesus came to the earth to establish his kingdom in our hearts. That Jesus came to the earth to establish his kingdom in our hearts. And we've been talking about this concept of kingdom for quite some time now, right? Our last series, we went through kingdom values, talking about that we give towards things that matter when we live in the kingdom. And so uh, hopefully it's not a new concept to you. If you've been here for a while, the kingdom of God, it's actually what Jesus talked about the most. But it's, it's not a, as the name sort of implies, he's not a normal king. And it's not a normal kingdom. It's a kingdom that doesn't have physical boundaries, It's a king who's unlike any other king, as we just said. That's why we say uncommon crown. His crown was a crown of thorns on his way to the cross. And so in the course of the series, this morning, we're going to look at the prophetic announcement of his birth and the fact then that he comes as uh, not a conquering emperor, but as a baby. We'll look at the train wreck that is his lineage Right, Matthew chapter one, we'll get there and look at how normally you would try to hide, right, the blemishes of a king's lineage and you'd highlight the good things, but maybe keep the bad stuff, you know, swept away. But Matthew highlights all of it in his genealogy, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll look at the spiritual nature of his kingdom and then on Christmas Eve, we'll just celebrate the joy of his arrival. So that's where we're headed across this series. But this morning as we're in Isaiah nine, even if you're not a Christian, and we're thrilled that you're here, if you're not, Uh, If you've been around church at all, and even if you haven't, you may have just heard just because of uh, our culture, having some Christian roots, you may have heard this passage. may have heard these words at Christmas time. Chances are many of us are quite familiar with them, but I want to give you the background. I think context is always important, but perhaps more so here in understanding the full weight of this statement from the prophet Isaiah. And so what happens here, so it's the 8th century B.C., And it is a time of national disaster for Judah and for Israel, okay? Things are not going well. And and we probably resonate with that a little bit, but but here, like, things aren't going... Here, things are really not going well. The the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, right? You got Judah in the south, and you got Israel in the north. And Isaiah is primarily speaking to Judah in the south and to Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is. But the northern kingdom is on the precipice of being wiped out by the Assyrians, this empire that is coming for them. And as the empire is coming, Israel is actually fighting against Judah. And Judah is crying out, Isaiah is telling them, look to the Lord. And the king instead looks to Assyria, 
for help. So you've got infighting in the nation of Israel. The king, Ahaz, crying out to everyone but God. He's actually practicing child sacrifice in order to try to get some answer from the gods and help. And so it's a time of economic disaster, natural disaster, it's a, or of a national disaster, but, but probably more than anything, it's a time of spiritual disaster. The northern kingdom about to be wiped out because of their turning away from the Lord and rebellion against God. And the southern kingdom is only about two lifetimes away, 130 years from the Babylonians coming in and wiping them out. And it's, it's because they repeatedly turn away from God. God keeps calling them back and repeatedly they go to everyone except God for help. And so the first eight chapters of Isaiah is mostly Isaiah pronouncing judgment on them and saying, look, God is judging you for your sin. He's calling the people to account. At one point in time, he actually tells them, God actually hates your sacrifices even, like your spiritual practices. When you come and sacrifice the animals to him, he's like, he hates it. Like, how could God hate that? He told them to do it. Isaiah says, because you guys' hearts aren't in it at all. You're over here sacrificing your children, consulting mediums and necromancers and spiritists, trying to get answers from the dead on behalf of the living. And all the while, your hearts are so far from God, but then you're over here going, well, maybe if we like throw up the sacrifices and check some boxes and go through the motions that God will be pleased with us. And Isaiah says, that's not the point at all. But your hearts are so far from the Lord. So the first eight chapters as you read it are honestly really hard. Hard to listen to. It's dark. And then you have Isaiah 7. And there's this moment where he talks about the sign of Emmanuel, this child that's going to be born to a virgin. And Emmanuel means God with us. And so you get this glimmer of hope that, hey, in the midst of this darkness, a light shines. And that God has not abandoned us. And then you get to Isaiah 9, and he tells them in the first few verses that light is going to shine into the darkness. The fortunes are going to be reversed. God has not abandoned his people. With this oppression over us, one day it will break. And you say, how's this going to happen? How is all this going to come about? And what he tells us starting in verse 6, that it'll come about through a child that's going to be born unto us and given unto us. And this is what he says, more than 700 years before Jesus is born, the prophet Isaiah tells the people of Israel this. Verse 6, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given. Now, most commentators seem to indicate when he says a son is given, right? This child is not only born, but the son is given. It's a reference to his deity. He's not just born, but he's given. You look forward to the New Testament, John 3.16 tells us, right? That God gave, the son was given to us. I think it's a good moment for us to pause and just remember that the entire coming of Christ is an act of grace. You know what grace means? It means favor that's completely undeserved. It's completely unearned. It's completely unmerited. It's completely undeserved. And I think the reason I highlight that is I want us to remember and take a moment this Christmas, just remember we're not entitled to Jesus, okay? He was given. His coming is a gift to us. Salvation is a gift. Forgiveness is a gift. It's the unearned, undeserved favor of God. And I think that's important for us to remember. I think we almost have to relearn that as a people in a sense, because we live in the age of entitlement. Do we not? Every parent said, yep, right. But parents, let's remember, it's not the kid's fault, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's us, it's the culture we live in, it seeps in, we all feel it, we all know it. Like we are told in a thousand ways every day, in big ways and in small ways, that you deserve 
that we deserve the best, we deserve good things. And if we're not careful, even as believers in Christ, I think that can seep into the point where we basically say, we deserve something from God. God owes us. And when we hear the story of Christ, it's like, well, of course Jesus would come for us. We're so worthy. But that's really not the Christian message. What Paul tells us in Romans is that what we deserved was death because of our sin. But he goes on and says this, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Forgiveness of sin is not something we earn and it's not something we deserve. Jesus is not someone we deserve, but he's someone that God freely gave. The son was freely given and Jesus freely gave his life as we just sang about for you and for me and it's completely unearned. It's a gift and it's something we receive by faith. He goes on and says this, right? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We're gonna come back to the names here in a moment. Most of our morning will be spent looking at those four names, but I just wanna take a moment. Let's just pause on this idea of everlasting government that's gonna be marked by righteousness and justice, right? So Isaiah just told us that he's gonna have this everlasting government. He's gonna sit on the throne of David, this child, this Messiah, this king, and his kingdom will never end. I don't know about you. I wanna live in that kingdom. I wanna live in the kingdom that's marked by righteousness and justice and that never ends. And I say that for many reasons. One, so right now, for our nation, right? Just nationally speaking, pretty much every statistic we have tells us that we live in a very polarized time, socially, culturally, and politically. It seems like, at least to me, the only thing we can agree on, right? One of the only things we can agree on is that things aren't going well. And what's funny is you ask people, right, on both ends of the spectrum, all ends of it, right? Are things going well? The answer is no. (laughs) Now, people disagree on why things aren't going well and what needs to be done to fix that. But the general sentiment right now of our culture is when you ask people, are things going well? Are we headed in the right direction? The answer is no. But here's what's interesting to me, or maybe even crazy to me. Every two to four years, right, as Senate and House of Representative elections come up or a new president is elected, this enormous amount of national and cultural societal hope and at the same time anxiety builds up as as our culture looks to elect someone and they go, this person's going to solve it. And yet deep down we know that's not true. Because what happens, right? That person gets into office and no matter who they are, they can't do half of the things that they promised to do. That's a historical reality. We, we know that deep down, and yet there's also this sort of hope that if we just get the right person or right people elected, maybe they can do something. But the reality is those folks, that person, they don't have the power and ability to do many of the things that they promised to do. And even if they do, four years later, someone else comes in who undoes half of what they did. And it's, the cycle goes on. And look, I'm, from a human perspective, like I'm, in some ways I'm glad, yeah, no one person has that. Seems like a wise system in some ways, right? That no one person has that authority. But praise God, that's not the reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus is not up for election every four years. Praise God. 
and he's a good king. His government will last forever. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. God promised this little shepherd boy, David, that he would be king. And then he promised him when he was king, someone will sit on your throne and that throne will last forever. And Jesus is that king and he's a really good king. It's a good kingdom with a good king and it never changes and it never ends. And I don't know about you, but I wanna live in that kingdom and I want you to live in and for that kingdom. Now, let's spend the rest of our time looking at what's the nature of this kingdom. And really we see that by looking at the nature of the character of the king. Who is this Messiah? Who is this child that rules over? Who is this one with the government upon his shoulder? And Isaiah gives us four names, four titles for Jesus that I think tell us about his character, his kingdom. First is this wonderful counselor. He's wonderful counselor. There are at least two ways that Jesus is wonderful counselor. The first, I think, is the one that most of us will immediately think about. And that is we think of God like a counselor, right? Counseling us, like like you sit down with a counselor and you talk about your life and your circumstances and your problems. And I think that's a fair application that God does counsel us. He gives us wise counsel. God is the source of all wisdom. And James tells us in the New Testament, if you lack wisdom, if you're sitting there today, you're a young person, you're like, I just don't feel like I know direction. I don't understand. Ask God. If you're an old person, you're like, I don't feel like I have wisdom, right? Ask God. And James tells us God gives freely without reproach to all who ask him. So ask God for wisdom. And it's true. We should go to him with all of our problems, with all of our life, with all of our circumstances, run to him. The father delights when his children bring all of their stuff to him and lay it down in his feet and say, God, we need help. We need wisdom. As the old song says, take it to the Lord in prayer. But I also wanna encourage you with something. As you take it to the Lord in prayer, not just in prayer, but take it to the Lord through his word. Okay, prayer and the word should be tightly tethered together, okay? One of the things that um, over just the course of ministry that I've heard people say at times is things like, man, I was in this situation, I prayed about it and I felt like God said yes, or I felt like I felt good, so I moved forward. And yet it's like, yeah, but the thing that you're saying that God said to do literally contradicts what he says in his word. <laughs> That's not a, right? And, and listen to me, I believe in prayer. I believe God speaks in prayer. We should pe- be people of prayer, but we also need to be people of the book. We have to tether ourselves to the word of God so that we can hear from God well because as God speaks to you in prayer, he will not speak in ways that contradicts what he says in his word. So you've gotta be in the word. You've gotta read it, listen to it, write it. If you're an artist, draw it out, right? Just get it into your mind, get it into your soul. Be in the word of God so that as you pray, you're hearing from the Lord well and through his word as well. Now, the second way is this, and I think this is actually primarily maybe the way that Isaiah is speaking and meeting, is that God is a wonderful counselor in the sense that he has a plan, that he's a wonderful, wise advisor, a planner, that he's taken counsel with himself about what he's gonna do to lift himself up and to save his people. And the reason I say that is this, number of passages in scripture, here's two, Ephesians 1, Paul says this, he works all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. That God has taken counsel with himself about what is his plan? What is his agenda for the kingdom? What's he doing in our world? And he's gonna work out that plan and work all things in accordance with the, the counsel of his will. In fact, Isaiah says it later, Isaiah 25, one. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned 
Or another way to translate that is things counseled long ago. You've done wonderful things, things counseled long ago. So in other words, this Messiah, this king, this ruler is infinitely wise and he's got a really good and wise plan for all things, your life included, from eternity past. Let me say it shorter than that. Nothing that happens happens outside of his knowledge and his ultimate good plan. Nothing that happens in your life or in your, your, my life happens outside of the counsel of God. Jesus told us what? No sparrow even falls to the ground outside of the care of your father. That's a way of saying like the, the most unimportant thing imaginable, right? A sparrow falling somewhere in the woods. We're like, yeah, it's random. It's not random. But God knows and he cares and he works all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. And let me just say something to you. If you will embrace that, and believe that and press into that reality that he's wonderful counselor who works all things, all things in accordance with the counsel of his will, that he's a good planner and a good father as we'll talk about, you will find that it is an incredible comfort to you in the midst of pain and suffering and in times of trouble to know and the wonderful counselor governs my life. Uh, Some of you know my daughter this week has been in the hospital uh, she had her second somewhat major surgery in the last five months or so. Uh, and I'm, just to be honest with you, the last five months have been probably the longest and darkest valley of my life, my family's life, right? There are these seasons in life and moments, mountaintop moments and valley moments. And uh, this has been one that's had a good bit of valley to it for us and probably the longest and darkest one to date. And this reality, this truth has been a major comfort to me and to my wife, right, to our family in the midst of this. I'm not saying I'm not hurting. I'm not saying I'm not cried. I've cried. I've been anxious in moments. I've been angry in moments. I've been troubled in moments. And then I remember, and God graciously reminds me that he's in control. And he's the wonderful counselor who works all things in accordance with his will. And that my suffering and my daughter's suffering, and my family's suffering, and your suffering, it's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. That's the temptation, right? Is to get angry and say like, God, how could you possibly, right? How could this be working out for good? How could you be doing something in the midst of this? And look, you may not be able to see it all. I may not be able to see it all yet. Of what, what are you doing in the midst of this? I sense that you're preparing us for things in the future, but I don't get to see it all yet. What I can see right now with my eyes is the hospital and the hospital bed and the waiting room and the pain and the hurt. But what we can see with the eyes of faith is that God is a wonderful counselor and that even things like this and this suffering is not happening outside of his good and ultimate plan. He's a wonderful counselor. And you might say, Kale, I just, how can you believe that? How can suffering, how could God purposefully put me through suffering? How could he purposefully put us through valleys like that if he's a really good God? If you, brother, sister, if you can't believe that, then you can't believe the gospel because what did God put his own son through? That was the plan from eternity past is that Jesus stepped out of heaven and became a baby and took on flesh and he suffered. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and his life was hard. 
and he hurt and he suffered, not for his sin, but for yours and for mine. And he went to the cross and he put on the uncommon crown of thorns and he gave his life on the tree for you and for me. And he suffered and he died and he was forsaken by the Father so that you and I might be forgiven. And through that suffering, that planned purposeful suffering, God was accomplishing the greatest thing ever. The kingship, the kingdom, our forgiveness, lifting Christ up so that all might see him for who he is. The son of God. God brings great good out of suffering. And church, we've got to believe that and embrace it. And I'm probably preaching that as much to myself this morning as I am to any of us, but we have to believe and embrace that. It's the story of the gospel and we've got a good father who works all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. So don't give in to that thought of that God doesn't care or that God doesn't act or that he can't, but he's impotent because he's not. He's certainly not impotent. Let's look at the next one. Mighty God. Mighty God. This name, this title emphasizes not necessarily his wisdom, but his power, his might. This child with the government upon his shoulder, he not only reigns, but he rules. Multiple times in scripture, God asks the rhetorical question, is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for me? And it's such a simple question, but it's so sweeping and complete in its application. Because the rhetorical answer, I guess, is nothing is too hard for you. In fact, Jeremiah 32, verse 17, the prophet says it this way, Oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Why? because you're not only wonderful counselor, but you're mighty God. And you're infinite in wisdom and in might and in ability. And that's really important, okay? It's important, like why is it important that he's also mighty God? Because it's one thing to be so wise that you can see all ends and you know what needs to happen, but it's another thing to have the power and ability to make it happen. Those two things are different, right? We've all experienced this. Right? We've all experienced looking, the futility and the frustration of looking at a situation and going, I know what needs to happen, but I can't do anything about it. Is that not most, one of the most frustrating things? Right? To see a situation and say, I know what needs to happen. I can see where this is going, but you can't do anything about it. You experience that futility of just not having the power to see it through. God never experiences that. It would be one thing, right? It's all well and good if God has a great plan to send his son into the world to save sinners like you and me. But if he doesn't have the power to execute that plan, then it's all for naught. If it's possible for his plans to be thwarted, then we're in real trouble. Maybe you've wondered that sometimes, right? Is it possible for God's plans? Like he had a really good plan, but then I came in and screwed it up, right? Or that people came at Adam and Eve, right? Screwed it all up. And then God was up there going, gosh, I had this great garden, but now, right? What am I going to do now? I got to figure it out. That's not, that's not what the Bible presents. Things planned long ago from all eternity. God has the power. He, no one can thwart, nothing can stop or thwart his plans. In fact, I started reading Job this week, Job 1. But later in Job, Job 42, verse 2. Job says this, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I just want you to think about that for a moment. That's coming from a man whose entire life fell apart. Like Job 1, you open up the book and it's like, I've been wrestling with this this week. You open up the book and Job's a righteous man who's pray, actively praying for his kids and then all of his kids die. All of his wealth is taken. All of his health is taken. Like, it's like the opposite. He's like the antithesis of the prosperity, health and wealth gospel, Right? 
you ever listen to some version of Christianity that's like, you just trust God and your life's gonna go really well? Read Job. <laughs> Read Jesus's life or Paul's life or any of the apostles. That's not biblical. All is well in the ultimate sense, but circumstantially things can be hard and will be hard for the believer. And here Job is, while his life has fallen apart, and God eventually is going to restore everything to him. But before the restoration comes, in the middle of the misery, he's looking up at God going, I know you can do all things. I know none of your plans can be thwarted. Figure that out. Most of the time when we challenge God's sovereignty, it's because things aren't going well. Maybe you can't do anything about it. Here Job is in the middle of everything falling apart saying, yeah, I know you're totally sovereign, God. I know that you're still good. None of his plans can be thwarted. Proverbs 19, 11, many are the plans in the, man of a mind, or in the mind of a man, in the heart of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It's his plans that will stand. Nothing outside of his plan and he has the power and the might and the ability to see it through. It gets better. Number three, everlasting father. This is perhaps the most confusing of the names because I would imagine most of us say, wait, I'm no scholar here, but I thought Jesus was the son, right? That's maybe what you're thinking. Like, hey, you've got God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And why is he calling Jesus the everlasting Father? So in case you're unfamiliar with this, maybe you're new uh, to the faith, we as Christians teach and believe in something that's called the Trinity, right? God is three in one. Three persons, all eternal, not created, existing forever as God, as one God. God, right, three persons in one God. And if you hear that and say, Cale, I don't fully understand that. I would say to you, neither do I, all right? And if anyone looks at you and says, man, Trinity's easy, right? Uh, you just slap them, right? I'm just kidding, right? Don't do that. But uh, you have, I, would, I would invite you to look at them and say, man, think about that more deeply. I mean, if they're looking at you going like, I totally understand it. I think I would say back to them, I don't think you're thinking about this uh, necessarily at a, at a deep level. Think about it more, right? God existing in three persons who are yet one, all of them being eternal. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that we don't understand anything about the Trinity, okay? And I think some things actually make perfect sense only because of the Trinity, like the fact that relationship is so central and that love, right? The scriptures say God is love. Think about this for a moment, right? If God were only one and not also three, then before the creation of the world, before the creation of anything else, there would have only been one, right? He'd have been alone and he'd have no one to love. How can love exist if there's only one? You have to have love demands relationship, right? Something or someone to love. But if he's three in one, that means he's been loving himself, right? There's been perfect relationship and love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for all eternity. And God is now, through the blood of Jesus, inviting us into that love and into that relationship. Some theologians call it the dance of the Trinity, that the Trinity has been in this dance, this beautiful dance for all eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, loving one another in perfect dance and relationship, and he's inviting you into the dance. And some of us who are dancers, you're like, that's beautiful. And others of us who hate dancing, you're like, oh no, right? <laughs> it's a metaphor, right? You don't actually have like, but you're invited into that relationship. If you want to, we don't have time for it this morning, but if you want to explore that idea further, Tim Keller's Jesus the King, right? I've referenced the book before, Jesus the King. Uh, he explores this concept through the gospel of Mark of the, the dance of the Trinity. It's beautiful. So we don't teach 
Point being, we don't teach the Trinity because it's completely comprehensible to our limited human minds. We teach God as three in one because that's how he reveals himself in his word. He talks about himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see that while they're one, they also do different things in the life of the believer. And so we teach that and we believe that. Now, what does this mean though? Jesus, right? The Son is the everlasting Father. A couple ideas I came across uh, in my study, which I think seem reasonable, but basically it says, hey, Isaiah is saying one of two things or both. One, a father can be the starter. I don't, we don't think Jesus is saying God is the father, right? He just said he's the, the son is given to us. So we think a father can be the starter of something, right? You can be the father of a nation or the father of a people. And in that sense, Jesus is the father of us as believers. The author of Hebrews tells us this, that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith, that it starts with him. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, the, the father of our faith. Secondly, and this is the one that, I'm not saying it's more true, but it personally resonates with me more, is that Isaiah is saying this and giving us this title or this name, Everlasting Father, because it emphasizes or highlights the king's everlasting care, concern, provision, and protection for the people in his kingdom, for you and for me. That Jesus, right, told his disciples, I won't leave you as orphans, I'll come to you. Jesus talked about wanting to gather Jerusalem to him like a mother gathers her hens. That there's this care, this fatherly concern and care and provision and protection that he loves you. He doesn't just reign and rule, but he cares and he loves. You see it next in Isaiah 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, but not just with justice, with righteousness. He's a good God. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God, but this everlasting father beautifully balances the wisdom and the power, but there's also care and concern and love. Once again, I don't know about you, I wanna live in that kingdom under the rule of that king. Everlasting father. And then finally, prince of peace the one that has perhaps been uh, most dear to me this week, Prince of Peace. Last week, Rick did a great job of defining peace from a Hebrew perspective, and I think it's worth repeating. Uh, shalom is the word, right? Shalom, peace. And for us, we often think in our culture of peace as a bit of a ceasefire. It's, we, we give it a negative uh, definition, not like a bad one, like in arguments, you've got positive arguments and negative arguments. That's more of a negative argument or negative definition, right? We tend to think of peace as the absence of conflict. The shooting stopped, the arguing stopped, the yelling stopped, right? There's some, there's some peace, but that's, that's not what shalom means in its fullness. Shalom is a positive definition of peace. It means wholeness, completeness, safety, satisfaction, blessing. It carries with this, this connotation, all is well. Shalom, all, your soul, your mind, your body, all is well. So I want you to think about that definition for a moment and then come back to this statement, this title, this name, that Jesus is the Prince of Shalom. I think one of the things Isaiah is telling us is, guys, he's the only one <laughs> This child, this one born to us, what we're celebrating at Christmas, he's the only one who brings wholeness. He's the only one. You, you will not find satisfaction or safety by looking in other places or other people. You won't find real blessing or real peace or lasting joy in looking to your career or to your wealth 
or to the adoration and praise of other people, whether online or in person. You won't find it looking to your kids. You won't find it looking to your spouse or a future spouse or finding another or a new spouse. You're not gonna find it there. It's not found in any other place or any other person. There's only one source of everlasting peace and joy and shalom, soul level peace, and it's Jesus. It's Christ and Christ alone. And Jesus bought that peace for us at the cross with his own blood. And I wanna explain that. Let me explain that for a moment. When I say that he bought that peace for us with his own blood at the cross, the reason you and I don't have peace, okay? From a big picture perspective, all of us outside of Christ, the reason we don't have peace. And then the reality is some of us are here still this morning and you're not experiencing any peace in your life. Some of us here this morning, it may be very evident like to you, or to those outside looking in, like your whole life is sort of a dumpster fire. And so from the outside and the inside, you're like, there's just no peace anywhere. My sense is that maybe for more of us from the outside, everything looks good. And people look at your life and seem like, seems like everything's going great because that's the image you project. But on the inside, there's no peace. There's no shalom in your soul. And the reason for that The reason none of us apart from Christ have peace is because sin separates us. Our rebellion against God separates us from our creator. There's hostility between God and us because of our sin. And that's the problem, okay? And this is really important to sit on for a moment, okay? Because your your little inner voice and a million voices from culture will try to tell you and help you understand what the problem is. And you're like, the problem is your kids, your spouse, your parents, your job, right? Your lack of income. The problem is this. And if you could just solve that, well, then you'd be happy. And listen, I'm not minimizing any of those problems. You may have many problems in your life, but the Bible never locates the problem as any one of those. Squarely, consistently, over and over and over, the Bible tells us the problem is our broken relationship with God. It's our rebellion against him and the punishment for that sin, the wages of sin is death. And then consistently, triumphantly, joyously and wonderfully, the Bible tells us that God gave his only son, that the son was given to us and that Jesus made peace with God by the blood of his cross. That he made peace for you and for me by living the life that we couldn't live perfectly in our place and then by dying the death that we deserved, by taking on the punishment of God against sin in your place and my place. And then Paul says it in Romans 5, 1 like this, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, by trusting in Jesus, we have peace with God. We've got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? What that means is if you have no peace today, that can change today. If you're here today and you've got no peace in your life, shalom does not exist in your soul. You don't have to leave here without it. You can put your faith in Christ today. Have you trusted him? Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus is the savior? I wanna close by just acknowledging attention. Some of us may feel it or even be thinking about it right now. You say, Kale, this talk of peace, Shalom, right? All is well. Like, have you looked around the world, right? You looked at the world around us, looked at my life, okay? Looked at your life. All is not well. I don't see shalom yet. How can Jesus be the Prince of Peace? I would say, brother, sister, friend, 
This is something we've been talking about for a long time. and something the Christian has lived in for the last 2,000 years. We call it the already, but not yet. We live in the already, but not yet. We live in this time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. There's coming a day. There is coming a day, and Isaiah talks about it. When he talks about the everlasting kingdom of righteousness and justice, he talks about later in Isaiah about when all things are made new and made well. To some extent, what Isaiah is doing is he's looking through Christmas to Revelation. When he talks about that, he's looking through the first coming to the second coming. When one day Jesus comes back and Revelation tells us he's gonna wipe away every tear from every eye and he's gonna make all things new and there'll be no more crying and no more tears and no more pain and no more death for the former things have passed away. And listen, that's not yet. We're still here and we should long for it. We should long, like we should be saying with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> right now, I long for the day when there are no more surgeries for three-year-olds. Others of us, you long right now for the day where there's no more cancer, no more suicide, no more Alzheimer's, no more depression, no more miscarriages, no more divorce. You're longing for that. We should say together, church, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly but it's not yet. And until he comes, we live though in the already. And this is important, already, because of the coming of Christ, because of his first coming, already in the midst of the broken world we live in and already in the midst of the hurt and the pain, we can experience a deep and lasting and abiding peace. We can, in the midst of it, experience a shalom that touches our souls. I know it doesn't fix every circumstance. I know it doesn't mean you look around and say, all is well circumstantially, but you can sing with the song. When sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You can experience it. Rick talked about it last week, the peace that surpasses all understanding. I got to experience it this week in the waiting room. I told you last time, right? I sat in that waiting room. You got nothing, other to do, nothing to do other than wait. Watch a screen and wait for the surgeon to come out and tell you whether things went well. Last time I walked a hole in the floor, right? The anxiousness, the anxiety. This time, I'm not saying I didn't walk, right? I'm not saying there weren't moments of anxiety and I've still felt those thoughts flood in, but I can tell you it was a different experience. And by the grace of God, it wasn't perfect, but it was real. The Prince of Peace met me there. And I got to experience peace and I got to worship and sing and, wor and praise and pray. And I got to experience real peace in the midst of that waiting because the Prince of Peace governs my life and he met me there and he can meet you where you are today. I don't care what it is. I mean, I care, but it doesn't matter what it is. The Prince of Peace can meet you right where you are today. And if you have no shalom in your soul and you say, Kale, all is not well. I don't feel it. I don't see it. Then bring it to the feet of Jesus today, now to the Prince of Peace and ask him, God, help me by the blood of Christ. Thank you for forgiveness. And let me sing today. It is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that for every single person here. And Lord, for those of us who know you and love you, 
God, will you set our hearts on fire? We're gonna sing here in a moment about you will be known in all the earth. God, may we take the shalom that we know and experience. May we take the good news of the everlasting Father, the mighty God, Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor, Savior and King, and may we take it into all the world. And may we live in that peace, in the knowledge, with this truth as an anchor for our soul. And Jesus, we thank you that you are a king unlike any other. And then God, I pray for that person who's here this morning that they have not experienced that peace. And if that's you, I wanna invite you to pray with me right now. If you know and believe that you're a sinner in need of a savior, and this morning you say, I wanna put my faith in Christ. The scriptures say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, that you'll be saved. It's not rocket science. It's not difficult. It's just hard in the sense that you have to humble yourself and say, Jesus, I need you. But you can pray with me now or you can pray in your own words. Jesus, this morning, I invite you, Prince of Peace, into my life. And I turn from my sin, all of it. I ask forgiveness. And I place my faith for all my life solely and wholly in you. Thank you for saving me. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all of who you are and what you've done. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.